I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's guest is David Ige. He is the governor of the state of Hawaii. Hawaii has the least number of coronavirus infections adjusted for population of any state in the union. It also has the least deaths. I interviewed Governor Ige to understand how Hawaii achieved these remarkable results. It is true that Hawaii is surrounded by water, so controlling infection by outsiders is easier. But there's no doubt in my mind that if some of the governors of other states were the governor of Hawaii, the results would not be the same. Governor Ige was born and raised in the Pearl City area of Honolulu. He attended the University of Hawaii, where he got a degree in electrical engineering. He worked for GTE Hawaiian Tel after college. He started his political career in 1985 when Governor George Ariyoshi appointed him to fill a vacant seat in the Hawaii House of Representatives. He and his wife have three children. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. And now, here's Governor David Ige. According to the numbers today, there's 48 cases per 100,000 people in Hawaii and one death per 100,000 people in Hawaii. Using those normalized figures, you are the best state in the nation. What do you attribute these remarkable results to? First and foremost, it's our geographic isolation, right? So this is one of the few times uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic that Our isolation kept us away uh, from the virus. And then I did take decisive action to order a 14-day mandatory quarantine for all travelers coming into state. And clearly, no other state can do it like we did. And it is a real uh, 14-day mandatory quarantine. Only uh, essential workers can get beyond the quarantine. And that really allowed us to isolate Hawaii and really test those that are infected and do the contact tracing and all of those things uh, that the public health people uh, insisted that we do. Oh, So when did you institute that quarantine? I ordered the quarantine on March 24th, 21st. So it was very early on. I issued the emergency proclamation on the 4th. We made modifications to that on the 16th, but the 14-day mandatory quarantine I ordered on uh, March 21st, and that allowed us to to isolate Hawaii from uh, the rest of the United States and uh, really the rest of the world. The other part of that guy for us, I knew that testing was going to be very important and our ability to test and detect the virus, especially because of our isolation, It was a high priority, and Hawaii was one of the very first states to get certified to be able to conduct the um, COVID virus tests here uh, in the islands. Our our state lab was um, the first public lab certified, and so we had the ability to test locally, and we could get results in, in a day. And that made a world of difference in allowing us to identify those infected and then trace contact and really identify others who may be sick and isolate them. And then the 14-day mandatory quarantine allowed us to isolate from the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And how did you, unlike perhaps 49 other governors, how did you come to such a rapid decision? I I heard that your daughter's a nurse. Did she call you up and say, Dad, this is what you got to do? 
We do have a, a strong public health uh, department here in the islands. And, you know, we, we had to uh, deal with SARS and MERS prior to COVID-19. Um, so uh, we have experience in dealing with infectious diseases. And I did realize pretty early on that the only opportunity for us to manage the virus was to really take decisive action and isolate very early. As you know, we have limited hospital capacity here in the islands. And I think we've all seen all of the videos uh, about New York and uh, all of the deaths that resulted when your healthcare system is overwhelmed with patients. And we did not want to see that happening here in the island. And there is a real sense of community. And I think that generally when we ordered the action, Everybody knew that um, we all had to do our part uh, in order to combat COVID-19. Would you do anything differently if you could go back? I don't know that I would do anything uh, differently. You know, we learn so much every single day about this virus. It certainly uh, is challenging in, in how it is so infectious, unlike other coronaviruses. You know, that's a big challenge. I do read more about asymptomatic carriers of the virus, and I think that has all of us just very concerned because if we, if we can't see the symptoms that someone is infected, it's virtually impossible to keep uh, people from spreading it, especially when they don't know that they're infected themselves. This may be a sore subject, but about... Two weeks ago, I read an article where there was a poll about the popularity of governors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought you would be like number one, two, three, or five, four or five, and you were number 49. And the only one worse was the governor of, let's see, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were 48 per 100,000. He's 504 per 100,000. You're one death per 100,000. He's 21 deaths per 100,000. Why is that? Why, why, why was that poll portraying you as so unpopular? It definitely required um, me to take very harsh and quick action. So, you know, it's, it's hard to be governor and chief executive when you're in the middle of a crisis and, and remember, Guy, we went from having the lowest unemployment rate in the country at less than 3% to having the highest unemployment rate in the country in the, in the course of um, six weeks. And so there are a lot of people being laid off. Just implementing the social distancing and the stay-at-home orders, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who felt like, how dare you? order us to be at home, those kinds of things. So certainly, I, I was surprised and disappointed by those ratings, but I'm an engineer, right? I'm more concerned about uh, performance and outcome uh, than I am with popularity. And, and, you know, people have commented that I'm not the most eloquent speaker or most inspiring. And so I work at it, but clearly I uh, have trouble communicating sometimes. And I think that that results in the the poll results that you see. Yeah, but if I had a choice between an eloquent governor or an effective governor, <laughs> I would pick an effective one. Uh, that goes the same for president, by the way. So, so 
I'm pretty much convinced that being in Hawaii is safe. But right now, there are sort of two deal killers. One is for a tourist or even myself. I don't want to get in a plane for six hours sitting with 350 people I don't know, elbow to elbow, using the same bathroom, serviced by the same flight attendant. So that's deal breaker number one. And deal breaker number two is I land and, you know, what, I'm going to stay in Halukalani for two weeks? I mean, knock on wood, <laughs> that's a high quality problem. So yeah. what's the plan? I mean, would you consider shortening the quarantine or maybe proof of negative results before you get on the airplane? This can't go on forever. Yeah, absolutely, Guy. And I, I think that that's the challenge and the dilemma in uh, just communicating to the broader community in general uh, about the challenge. We do have um, 100,000 uh, people unemployed now. They are getting close to the end of the unemployment support that they're getting. And certainly we need to restart the economy. So last week we uh, launched what the reopening plan uh, would be. Uh, and it is focused in a couple different areas. There still is a huge concern about getting infected uh, with the virus. And, you know, the community in that same poll that you referenced they did talk about most in our community would rather us go slow than go fast, right? I mean, they are concerned about their health. They don't want to see flare-ups of the virus. And so when we look at restarting um, the visitor industry, we're, we're looking at what are the conditions that would allow us to do it safely? Uh, and how do we bring um, people from outside of the state back into the state in a way that doesn't uh, put our community's health at risk. So uh, we're, we're look, looking at it in phases. I announced last week that we're going to allow, uh, up until this point, we had a quarantine also on inter-island travel. So if, if you are a mom, really? yes, because, wow. well, because part of that was that the virus was really circulating at a much higher rate on Oahu and on Maui. And, and the virus infections on Kauai and Hawaii Island was very low. Uh, and so there was a concern, and the mayors asked that I uh, implement a quarantine for inter-island travel as well. And that really drove the numbers down so that all the counties became pretty much equal. You know, there's very little virus in any of the counties. So part of my reopening tourism is starting with inter-island first. So trying to get the local economy, Kamaina economy going, encourage people to take staycations, uh, but we are implementing a new process because we know public health is important. So I am ordering a new public health form. So when you travel into island, you're going to have to give us your name and residential address, as well as where you're going to, you know, the flight you're on uh, and a, a phone number, two phone numbers, actually, that we can contact you. Uh, and then we're doing a health screening asking, have you traveled anywhere uh, to be exposed to the virus? How are you feeling? Uh, we are taking temperature screens uh, at the airport to make sure that no one with a fever is traveling. Uh, then just asking, you know, do you have um, a cough, uh, shortness of breath, all of the symptoms of uh, COVID-19. So at least we can do a screening. Uh, and then, you know, we let them know that if you get sick or you become symptomatic, you need to let us know and we'll uh, provide services to you uh, as you travel. So from our perspective, the inter-island is kind of phase one because it allows us to fine-tune this process of 
being aware of where people are traveling and being able to contact them should they get sick. You did not mention any kind of swab tests, so that's not... Not required for inter-island travel, mm-hmm. okay? So beyond that, so that'll allow us to really, you know, we're putting an app together. We're going to ask people to load the app, enter the information online, and then we're going to ping them every once in a while to make sure that they're healthy and that they don't become symptomatic. So the next phase is really Trans-Pacific, you know, and we are looking at bringing people from out of state into state in a couple of different ways. Hawaii gets tourists from all around the world and definitely looking international. And we are looking for communities that have low virus infection rates that are similar to ours. That's kind of the first phase of bringing people from out of state into state. So clearly Japan and Korea on the international level uh, have done very well in fighting the virus. Also looking at uh, New Zealand, everybody talks about New Zealand and all the work that they've done uh, and Australia, and both of those have a very low uh, virus transmission rates. The challenge for us is domestically, uh, as you know, the virus is, is really increasing in California. Yes. Um, and so, you know, that's going to be the biggest challenge is uh, when will we be ready here in Hawaii to uh, invite visitors uh, from uh, California or anywhere else in the United States for that matter. can't ask you the timeline because who knows what's going to happen but what are the conditions that you say okay now it's okay for people from california to come to hawaii well so we are working on a couple of pilots what we call pilots that you know and and i actually uh, am trying to set up a a call with uh, japan and members of the diet there but so we are looking at the whole notion of can we require them to take covid tests a prior pcr test Uh, prior to uh, departing, 72 hours before departing uh, to Hawaii and be able to demonstrate uh, a negative result so they are not infected with COVID. You know, and that would allow us to um, make sure in our community that people are comfortable that they've been tested and that they're negative. And we are working with the whole hospitality industry and asking them to be a part of the solution. Uh, So part of that is, um, you know, they have to help us keep track of the visitors who are staying in their facility. We're going to ask them to uh, embrace uh, new cleaning and sanitation standards. We're going to ask them to educate the traveler to what is respectful and appropriate travel. So, um, you know, in Hawaii, we have been in the past promoting protecting our native Hawaiian culture and protecting the environment specifically. Uh, and now we're going to expand that a little and, and ask them to be respectful of our health so that if someone travels and becomes symptomatic and, and begins to show signs of COVID-19, then they agree that we'll um, provide them health care and get them tested Uh, and really ask the properties to take responsibility and make sure that they're isolated so that they don't infect other travelers 
uh, and most importantly, they don't uh, infect our community. So we are looking at establishing these kinds of protocols and processes uh, so that we can bring travelers back in in a way that ensures the health and safety of our community. I've read a few stories where uh, people come to Hawaii, they're supposed to do 14-day quarantine, and you you notice that they're not in their hotel rooms and all that, and they actually get arrested. I mean, that's true. They, they get arrested for doing that? Yes. You know, we... You know, Guy, it's one of those things, right? I wanted to make sure when I ordered the quarantine that people understood that this was a real quarantine. It's not like um, uh, just something for show. 22 other states have ordered a mandatory quarantine. We're the only state that's actually arresting people who violate quarantine. (laughs) We've actually arrested 41 individuals who have come and broken quarantine. And we do have law enforcement uh, we do, uh, you know, most of that is re- in response to, you know, they're posting on uh, TikTok or Instagram or all of those kinds of things, of, of flaunting the fact that they've they've come to Hawaii and they're in a hotel and they're violating the quarantine. And so we have been aggressive in going after them uh, because we don't want people uh, to just be traveling and think that. Uh, the quarantine isn't meaningful. You know, we are in a public health emergency and someone coming from California where the virus is raging, coming into Hawaii has a higher probability of being infected and obviously making residents sick. Is it literally true that hotel rooms, uh, hotels are giving people keys that open the door one time? So if you if you go out, you can't get back in the key second time. That's true. Yes, we are. That's part of our protocol. As as you, wow. you know, I can send you what the the quarantine protocol is, and you're supposed to uh, go straight from the airport directly to the quarantine site without making any stops for any reason. Uh, and not even zippies. Not even zippies. Uh, you're supposed to uh, go straight to your uh, uh, hotel or your accommodation, and you're not supposed to leave. And we do have uh, providers who will deliver food so you can get meals there. And we have been working with the hotels here so that they understand and they help communicate. When people check into the hotels, they are informed that we have a real quarantine here and they're not allowed to leave their rooms. So in some instances, they would be escorted to the room and they don't actually get a key at all. In other wow. instances, they they get a, a key that is is keyed so that it'll work once and then it won't work again. Okay. Yeah. What is your opinion of the federal or national leadership at this time as a governor? It's really been hard for all of us governors. You know, I'm a guy. I'm on a call once a week with all the other governors, and we're just sharing notes and talking about it. You know, especially in the last two weeks with all of the Black Lives Matters protests and, and all of that, all, all governors felt like it was really important that the president um, provide some assurance to the general community. And he shouldn't be instigating uh, more activity or military action to really quell the violence. You know, I think regardless of party, I think we all feel and recognize you know, that the tragic death of George Floyd, 
you know, just demonstrates that we still have a long way to go in in uh, racial equality uh, all across the country. You know, in Hawaii, as you know, guy, where we're all minorities, we learned a long time ago that we have to work together in order to be able to do anything. And so, you know, for all of us here in the islands, it's very important. And and some of the governors uh, respectfully suggested that the president needs to move to to be the president for all people and really calm people's concerns and really express the notion and make a commitment to reforms to address the grievances that have festered so long in our community. And unfortunately, the president wasn't willing to do that. And I think a number of governors called him out on it because it, it's really important uh, what the president says, uh, regardless of the politics of the situation. Do, do you think that this, this lack of national leadership, has it caused you to have to sort of almost redefine what a governor is? It, it absolutely has, and for a number of reasons. And typically, and in, in an emergency situation, our roles in connecting to the federal government for a hurricane or a tsunami or, or, or things like that is very specific. And I think because all of us had wanted assistance from the federal government and they were not reliable and we couldn't count on them, all of us governors had to take um, matters into our own hands. You know, for the longest time, we had trouble purchasing personal protective equipment, N95 masks to keep first responders safe, uh, you know, swabs and um, reagents to, to be able to conduct tests. All of us states were really competing with, with uh, each other to try and get the materials that we needed to protect our communities. You know, in fact, we had an, an order for personal protective equipment uh, lined up early on in the, in the episode in, in late February and early March. And we got outbid by Calif- the state of California um, you know, and suddenly uh, the supplier wanted us uh, to charge us three times what we had agreed to because California was willing to pay and we just couldn't do it. So, you know, it's those kinds of things that really should have been coordinated early on. You know, availability of testing. It was very clear to me as governor from Hawaii that we weren't going to get much help from the federal government in terms of testing. Uh, and so we made a commitment uh, to not only get the state labs, but we were working with our private sector labs and, and helping them to get certified uh, and making sure that uh, they could get access to all of the materials and equipment that they needed so that we could conduct tests uh, for COVID-19 in the state of Hawaii. In the very early days when we had to send samples to the mainland to get tested, it would take a week to 14 days to get results back. And how can you fight a virus with an incubation period of up to 14 days? And it takes you 14 days to get test results. It's virtually impossible and it's not helpful. So it did force all of us as governors to be more self-reliant and really count on each other more than we would count on the president. Well, the irony of that is, uh, I think one of the GOP or conservative 
theories is the reduction of federal government. And so the, the party that stands for that has caused a situation where the states are for unintended consequences in that position, right? I, I, I think states are more independent now and less dependent on the federal government because they could not depend on the federal government. So what irony. Yes, it certainly is. And, and you know, and it's really sad. Usually emergencies, um, you know, for all of us involved in politics, you know, emergencies is, is one thing we felt that politics shouldn't be involved. It really should be the needs of the, the people and the communities should clearly come first. And this is uh, one instance where uh, it's very clear from the federal government that politics uh, would be involved uh, and that um, some of what they did or how they did it was really depending on um, the specific politics involved in the situation. Uh, Switching gears a little, going to Black Lives Matter, uh, what do you think the impact will be on policing? going forward? Is it going to be more controlled by the state government as opposed to the municipal governments? Do you think there's this movement for defunding police departments? What's your take on what's going to happen to policing in America? I'm disappointed that one of the solutions that is being promoted um, by some of the protesters is the whole notion of defunding police. I think we all recognize that there needs to be law and order in, in all communities Uh, regardless of political parties. And, you know, defunding police is just not a pragmatic or realistic uh, solution. And, you know, really, it doesn't address the fundamental issue of um, uh, racial inequalities and the fact that there are still remnants of discrimination uh, throughout um, law enforcement throughout the country. Uh, And um, just defunding police doesn't really address it directly. Um, you know, guy in Hawaii, I was really proud. You know, this past Sunday, we had the largest demonstration or statement of uh, concern that I've seen in Hawaii probably in more than a decade. There were more than 10,000 people collecting uh, at the state capitol to really support the Black Lives Matter and and uh, make a commitment to to fund and invest and support addressing the racial inequalities and the mistreatment. Uh, you know, we don't see it so much here in, in our community. As you know, our police departments are filled with minorities, pre- pretty much in the ratios of our communities. And I think our um, police departments here in Hawaii uh, have embraced the whole notion of community policing and, and being involved with the community uh, a long time ago. So we don't have the anger and and the hostility uh, here in the islands that uh, we saw across the country uh, that really erupted in different ways. But, you know, I think all of us recognize that, you know, there's no place for discrimination and mistreatment of anyone, you know, due to skin color or ethnic background. Uh, and it really just reminded all of us that that we need to all take ownership of that. Uh, and really do everything that we can uh, to end the racial inequalities and the um, miscarriage of justice, uh, regardless of ethnic backgrounds. As as governor of perhaps the most diverse state in the union, 
do you have any advice for governors of other states about what they can do to reduce racial inequality and increase racial harmony? Well, I mean, I do talk a lot in, in my participation in the National Governors Association, you know, just about recognizing that it's it's really comes down to a respect for all peoples. And, you know, I, a guy, what I talk about a lot is the gift that all of us uh, received, you know, all of us immigrated from somewhere in the islands, uh, even the native Hawaiians, although they came, may have come uh, thousands of years before the rest of us as immigrants. But, you know, the gift we, we received from native Hawaiians is, is, you know, the whole notion of, of it's important of where you came from and not forgetting those who came before you. Uh, but most importantly, it's about um, being proud and willing to celebrate, you know, where you're from and the traditions and cultures that you believe in uh, and really allowing all of us to celebrate. You know, I'm from Okinawa and Japan, uh, the first uh, Okinawan descendant elected governor in the in the country. And in Hawaii, we celebrate that and how different Okinawans are from other Japanese and, you know, Koreans and Chinese and uh, Native Hawaiians all are empowered to do the same. And so I just promote the notion that everyone deserves to be proud of where they've been, proud of the traditions and cultures and religions that they have and that they embrace. And certainly that they should be allowed to share it with everybody. And we all become better uh, when we do that, when we are able to participate in cultural festivals here in the islands and be able to share, you know, what my grandfather believed in with uh, others is just an important part of uh, working to build that better nation where everyone is truly treated equally. advice for just the random listener something tactical that they can do vis-a-vis either the pandemic or the racial discrimination like what what can you know mr or ms regular person do not a governor not a president not an influencer just anyone i mean i think what what we promote a lot here guys about living aloha right it's about living the values that you would want to Uh, see your neighbors embrace about being respectful of everyone and all views, you know, even those that might disagree with you on specific issues, you know, everyone deserves to be respected, you know, and I think that that's really key. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Uh, You know, that's the golden rule. And I think if everybody could embrace that, then the world would be a much better place. This pandemic has truly forced all of us to uh, evaluate what we're doing. And I know that Hawaii will not be the same uh, moving forward. The challenge and the opportunity is to reinvent every single industry. 
it's remarkable how uh, every business, uh, every industry in the uh, islands have had to uh, rethink what they do and, and operate differently to protect employees, to protect customers, uh, to protect the community. And clearly, in a different way, 9-11 changed the world. I do think that in 2020, this novel coronavirus will change the world. And being uh, better prepared to uh, be flexible, um, you know, to embrace technology, because clearly uh, a lot of the technology uh, in Hawaii, you know, I've not seen so much telework and telecommuting and um you know, my son is a software engineer for Microsoft, uh, and he's been working from home for the last uh, six months. And I'm trying to get him to recognize that he can come, come home and, and do software development from Hawaii, as we've talked a lot about. Um, well, you know, I, I could I would agree with that sentiment that before there was sort of a judgment, right? That, you know, you're not in Silicon Valley. You're not where the center of the universe is for tech and all that. But now, quite frankly, nobody knows where anybody is anymore. Mm -hmm. My niece, you know, works for CBS and CBS, not the drugstore. And she used to be based in LA, but she, you know, is in Hawaii and nobody could tell that her, she's making sales calls from wherever. So, why couldn't you have a Microsoft or an Apple or anything start in Hawaii? Absolutely, you can. Absolutely. I can't think of any place better in the world to live. Our commitment to equality is beyond compare to any other community. And I think the, the quality of life here and our commitment to the environment, there is no better place to, to live and work uh, and to raise a family than uh, to be here in the islands. And this pandemic has really proven that you can be anywhere and work for anyone and able to be very productive. And so certainly I'm going to go track down your niece uh, and make <laughs> sure I can connect to her and, uh, and keep her here. Uh, okay. And I'm definitely working on my son to get him uh, to be able to do software for Microsoft from here in the islands. As you look back over your career, do you have any mistake that stands out and what you learned from it? Just people find it very curious, you know, what, what someone remarkable and successful would say, yeah, I really blew it that time. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm, uh, I ever can point to anything uh, specific. You know, Guy, my wife likes to remind me when I graduated from engineering school back in uh, 79, I had several job offers from Silicon Valley from a, a few uh, startup companies like uh, Intel before they became the giant that they are, uh, yeah. you know, and she keeps saying that I should have took that job uh, because my life would be different. I'd be like you and getting out surfing and doing all the things that uh, you enjoy doing. <laughs> So she reminds me that I, I really should have done that and taken that job instead of returning back to the islands. You tell your wife that I quit Apple twice. Steve offered me another job. I turned him down. I turned down the opportunity to interview for the CEO position of Yahoo, the first CEO of Yahoo. Uh -huh. So if you add all that up, 
It's a lot of money. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. something you and I share that <laughs> we made those kinds of mistakes. Well, thank you, Governor. I appreciate this very much. I know you have lots on your plate and it's not just macaroni salad and <laughs> loco moco. Take care. Huh? I'm coming to Hawaii as soon as I can. Uh, so. Just remember, you'll be subject to quarantine, but please come. Aloha. Uh, I can't say I'm the friend of the governor. There's no FOG plan. No, unfortunately, uh, none, no uh, get out of quarantine free card. <laughs> if nothing else, I hope that you learned from Governor Ige that Hawaii takes its 14-day quarantine really seriously. Don't be flying there and then post pictures of you cruising around Hawaii because you will get arrested. The lesson of Governor Ige is that listening to scientists and doctors taking decisive action, and putting people's lives above partisan politics is how to control a pandemic. This attitude is sorely missing in much of the United States. As an exercise, compare and contrast what your political leadership has done. Okay, it's review time. And boy, this has got to be one of my all-time favorite reviews. The title is, Why This Podcast is So Darn Important. It's by Josh Rippon. Here is why Guy Kawasaki's podcast, Remarkable People, is so crucial to this COVID-19 2020 moment. I taught United States, European, Hawaiian, and medieval history for 17 years in Hawaii. Throughout my life and my career as an educator, I came to understand that the stories of remarkable people are one of the prime drivers of history. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts that occasionally capture the stories of exceptional humans. But so far, not one that focuses so exclusively, so intently, and so intelligently on remarkable people. Every single day, young readers around the world read about these people in books. They watch them in great films and theater productions. They follow them on social media. And as they read, watch, and follow remarkable people, they emulate the evident innovation, imagination, creativity, vision, sustainability, resilience, kindness, compassion, morality, and wisdom in their stories. This is our hope for the world. So to have Guy Kawasaki bring these remarkable people and their qualities to life, especially in this particular COVID-19 moment that cries out for leadership, is a great blessing to the world. When I listen to great questions for and great responses from Steven Pinker, Jane Goodall, Sean Thompson, Ariana Huffington, Sam Weinberg, my superhero, and Sir Ken Robinson, oh my, another superhero, among others, I aspire to be just a little bit remarkable to my friends, my family, and my community. I'm inspired to be better and do more. That Guy Kawasaki's podcast has this kind of impact on me and hopefully millions of others is way, way cool and very remarkable. Well, what can I say, Josh? Thank you very much for that review. I'll give you one more. Title of this one is Awesome by Brian M254. I first saw a guy in a documentary on Apple. His screen presence was really captivating. I thought he would be a good podcast host. Then I forgot about it. The thought returned to me years later and I looked guy up on Apple Podcasts and there he was. Guy seems genuinely curious and open-minded. I will definitely keep listening. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate these reviews. I hope others will also post reviews of remarkable people. Just go to the Apple Podcast app and off you go. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. 
My thanks to Mufi Hanneman, the CEO of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. Think about how hard that job must be now. He's also running for the mayor of Honolulu. Mahalo also to Jeff C. and Peg Fitzpatrick for the magic that makes this podcast happen. Until the next episode, wash your hands, maintain your social distance, listen to scientists and doctors, not politicians, be safe and be healthy. Aloha. This is Remarkable People.